Hello, and welcome back to our discussion of the Brothers Karamazov. We've had a bunch of really exciting chapters lately between Ivan's huge Grand Inquisitor speech and then our discussion of the Elder Zosima and his final talks and homilies, um, which include what is most likely the central passage of the entire text and the kind of thematic material at the center of this book. Um, and then we get this section. Uh, this is Book 7, Alyosha, and we should be struck by the fact that, just here at the beginning, that this is Alyosha's chapter. Um, we have very much been sort of told, uh, kind of encouraged to think of Alyosha as the hero of this book by both Dostoevsky himself and by our narrator, and for us to actually stumble across this admittedly small and kind of weird little section that is supposedly just devoted to him should be a, an inkling to us that this is more important than it seems. And this is a surprisingly important chapter, even on the heels of the chapters that have gone before. Um, if Ivan's chapter is giving us this sort of glimpse of the mind of a tortured genius, a, a sort of academic and liberal in, in the vein of those that Dostoevsky is especially sympathetic to and sort of insightful about throughout the whole of his work, and Eldrazosima gives us a glimpse of what Dostoevsky believes goodness actually looks like, here we see a moment of incredibly important character development for the character that is at the core of this novel. Um, Alyosha is very up and down in this section, and for good reason. A lot happens to him, despite the fact that this is only, you know, 38 pages by comparison to some really gargantuan chapters in the past. Um, so it's striking to see first how this happens, how Alyosha loses his faith over the course of this section, and then how he regains it again. Um, this development is kind of what's so crucial to understanding who Alyosha was and who Alyosha is becoming. Um, and obviously this starts with this chapter on the odor of corruption. And I'll be honest with you, this is one of the most memorable chapters in this whole book as far as I'm concerned. Like, as much as the, the homilies of Elder Zosima are probably the more important section by, by a long shot, at least for interpreting this text and trying to understand what Dostoevsky is doing, the scene that he describes here with all of these people crammed into the monastery and the body of the Elder Zosima just starting to smell, it's very evocative. Um, and it is a very important chapter thematically as well. If Zosima gave us a glimpse of what goodness is, even in the face of great evil, here we see kind of this perfect encapsulation of the evil that Dostoevsky is particularly interested in talking about. Um, it's something that I've kind of alluded to a little bit in the chapters past, um, but here we get this second formulation this of that Zosima had suggested before, uh, that this is the fall of the righteous man. Um, and notice that it's a really subtle, kind of stupid thing that ultimately brings this about. The narrator even remarks upon this, that it is first a temptation to the monks and the, the lay people visiting, but then it's, you know, this kind of dumb thing that is natural and that everyone should have expected to happen, and yet everybody doesn't, and everybody is, like, quietly holding on to this faith. So just to, let's talk about it. Let's at least, you know, discuss what's going on here. Um, so the Elder Zosima is dead. 
like we've had his lecture, his whole homilies and discussions and the, the biographical information that we get about him, all the stuff that we unpacked last week. Now he's passed away. And everyone is obviously really upset about this. Like, Alyosha is frankly beside himself. Father Pacey is obviously very upset. There's that moment where he's like going to console Alyosha and realizes that, you know, Alyosha is just sobbing completely uncontrollably. And Father Pacey has to kind of back off lest he do the same. Um, all of these monks are sort of discomposed here. Um, but at the same time as this death has occurred, it's in the context that we've sort of been introduced to over the course of of many chapters at this point, where the institution of the elder is very much under fire, and there's this political storm circulating around the elder Zosima, the institution of the elders altogether, and the way that the monastery functions as a whole. Um, we've seen, you know, especially in Elder Zosima's chapter, he's deliberately defending both the institution of the monastery and the institution of elders by extension. Um, and we have also heard sort of counterpoints from Father Farapont, the kind of seriously fasting holy fool who apparently never leaves his his corner, his closet, uh, and now we see him again sort of weighing in on everything that, that is going on here. Um, so we know that this is a dicey situation, that this is more tense than it lets on. Um, and we get this weird sort of dichotomy in the way that the various people respond to what happens. Um, we have this great deal of hope and faith surrounding the elder's death, and we have this these sorts of factions in the monastery where the majority is apparently on the side of the institution of the elders. They supported and loved Father Zosima, and they want to see you know his remains and his death bring glory to God and to him. Um, and as a consequence, they kind of act inappropriately here, you'll notice. Um, there's that great little passage about how, you know, apparently it is tradition for them to leave the coffin open for the entire day in the monastery um, so various people can come and mourn, grieve, pay their respects. Um, it, it's a sort of public ceremony. Now, admittedly, this is in the monastery, so you'll notice that no women are allowed, and Madame Koklikov has uh, Rakuten giving her him her regular half-an-hour updates. Um, there are also numerous other people who are sort of outside the monastery walls, especially the monks who are going about their business um, just as though it's any other day. But at the same time, many of the leaders of the monastery, especially Father Pacey, are reading the gospel over the dead man. Um, and we get this passage where apparently the monks who were laying the body to rest in this sort of room where they're keeping him, they have this question, should we open the windows or not? And there's this moment of hesitation, this sort of recognition that this is itself an act of faithlessness, or it is assumed to be. Um, these loyal monks who believe, who believe in the holiness of Elder Zosima, the holiness of his mission and the sort of significance of what he represented this monastery. Again, Dostoevsky has been making him out to be basically a saint since the beginning of this book. Like, he has never stepped wrong um, in his interactions with all of the other characters. So we know that Zosima is, in many ways, holy. The moral center, the conscience of this novel, that Alyosha looks up to him and we look up to Alyosha, so therefore Elder Zosima is almost a Christ-like figure here. 
So as a result, these monks were like, well, let's leave the windows closed. If we opened them, that would be sort of an indication that we don't believe in this elder's saintliness. Because apparently there's this tradition at this monastery that the bodies of very holy monks and, and saints did not exude an odor of corruption. They, they did not corrupt at all. Um, and in fact, we get this bit about how it is tradition in the mon monastery to believe that certain very holy elders and very holy monks are lying completely intact in their coffins, despite the fact that it's been like hundreds of years. Um, and they are, if anything, even more lifelike now than they were when they died, as though they're just waiting for God to come and raise them up. Now, obviously, there's a lot of theological sort of implication going on here, and a lot of it I'm not able to speak to. Um, the very little bit that I can sort of point out, point to and point out is that this is very much in line with the, the writing in 2 Thessalonians and Revelation, um, as well as many of the other eschatological passages in the Old and New Testaments, which very much emphasize that Christians who die but are faithful will be resurrected. Um, in fact, Revelation argues that everybody's going to get resurrected, and then the faithful are going to get rewarded because their name will go in the Book of Life, while the damned will be punished because they are not, and God will overlook them, and they will get cast into the lake of fire eventually. It's this whole thing. Um, eschatological passages are really difficult to interpret, though, and are subject to a great deal of theological speculation and distinction um, across even relatively similar Protestant circles, like, for example, between the Baptists and the Presbyterians and Evangelicals at large, you will see many different interpretations of how Revelation and eschatology is supposed to be interpreted. And you'll notice here, we're apparently right in the middle of a fairly active theological debate between the Russian Orthodox Church and the Greek Orthodox Church. Um, and you'll notice that we get a little bit of like back and forth here where apparently the Greek Orthodox Church is convinced that whether or not the body corrupts after it's immediately dead has nothing to do with the holiness of the saint. Instead, they have this tradition where it's like you check their bones after a certain amount of time has passed. If they're yellow, then they're holy. And if they're black, then they're, they're damned. Like, it's this whole thing. Um, suffice it to say, for us... It doesn't matter what the theology is, whether it's good theology or bad theology. The narrator encourages us to recognize that this is bad theology that is being practiced here. All of the monks are kind of quietly and superstitiously hoping that Elder Zosima's body is not going to decay. Not because it's theologically sound. Again, on the contrary, it seems that there's a lot of debate about whether or not this is even theologically justifiable at all. But more importantly, the question here is, will he, you know, be so holy that you can also be superstitious about it? Can you believe, can you be tempted by this conviction that maybe he, his body will be preserved? And what's more, it isn't. Like, Elder Zosima's body very much stinks. And there's something very human about this. Like... We get this glimpse from Dostoevsky that Elder Zosima is this very holy figure, that he has his, his finger on, the, pole, on the, the beating heart of Christian theology and theory, that he loves and love is the center of what Christianity is all about. This is what Dostoevsky has emphasized over and over and over again in this book. And yet, this is a very human attitude. 
Like, this is not theology in this sort of highfalutin sense where it's, you know, understanding the mysteries of God or, or Christian mysticism or, you know, the theological profundity of justification and sanctification. Like, that's not what's being discussed here. Zosima was very much a practical thinker when it came to his philosophy and his theology. Again, even when Ivan is talking about whether or not the ecclesiastical courts have, you know, the justification to pass judgment on people, Zosima is much less interested in what is their authority, is it from God or from secular sources or wherever, but rather he's entirely interested in the effect that it will have on the person being judged, how a person who is guilty before the ecclesiastical courts will in fact repent when a person who is guilty before a secular court will not. So again, even when Father Zosima is doing theology, it is very practical. And as a consequence, it makes sense from a sort of symbolic or thematic standpoint that right here and now, rather than be some kind of holier-than-thou figure, having this saintliness that, that permeates even his physical form so much that when you know he is dead, he doesn't start to decay or according to various you know untrustworthy sources actually like give off the smell of fresh flowers like notice that Dostoevsky plays with the language here as though the reports that there were monks who did in fact not decay are probably hokum or probably nonsense like this elder died probably a hundred years ago, and apparently some people still claim to remember that he gave off the smell of fresh flowers. It's very dodgy. Um, and on the one hand, Dostoevsky is emphasizing this dodginess. On the other hand, he's emphasizing its innocence, that everyone kind of secretly hopes that this will be the case, that everyone is secretly hoping for a miracle, that everyone wants the elder who they cared about and who cared about them, who they invested so much of their time and energy in, to be special in some way and to be acknowledged as special by God in some way. They want to see a miracle because it would prove to them that they were right to follow this very remarkable, very extraordinary, very loving man. And what we get instead is something that is entirely predictable i.e. he decays and starts to stink. But notice that it very quickly turns from being something natural to something unnatural. That in fact all of the detractors, the sort of monks who were very much against the institution of elders, the lay people who are here to visit, they very quickly start to assert not just that he stinks and therefore has not been chosen by God for this honor of, you know, smelling like flowers and therefore this miraculous, you know, lack of corruption, but on the contrary, they're emphasizing that how could this old man who is nothing but skin and bones stink at all? In fact, this is a diabolical miracle, a revelation that this man was not as holy as he seemed. God is indicating to everyone around us that the elder Zosima was not the holy, sacrosanct, good man we thought he was. Now notice, this is a really interesting choice from Dostoevsky's perspective. The fact that he has built up this character so much for so long, and then at this moment, when we would expect to see something special happen, when we would get to see Dostoevsky deliver his final coda on the Elder Zosima's holiness, he rejects that. And instead, 
takes this opportunity to examine something even more deep and even more profound on this whole discussion of evil and suffering. Namely, how much joy these people take in the fall of a holy or good man. There's a certain amount not just of satisfaction or of naysaying here, but of glee, of spite. These people who are very keen to see the elder get his comeuppance. And notice that the majority of monks who do in fact believe in Elder Zosima, and do in fact respect him, are kind of cowed and you know, distracted by this minority who is arguing instead that this is an indication of God's displeasure. There's no way to respond to them, in, in fact, especially because so many of them are so emotionally fraught anyway. They're, they're kind of damaged at this point. They're hurting because this man is lost to them, this man that they cared about. And now there are all of these people who are taking a perverse glee in this turn of fate, this turnabout of the elders' apparent holiness. They're enjoying sticking it in the faces of the monks who, in fact, insisted on his goodness and holiness. Even though they never said that they expected to, to have him smell like flowers, there's this indication, this sort of recognition that this expectation was both frivolous and wrong, and therefore all the more reason to draw attention to it. And I can't help, like, as much as I don't want to get too deep into a sort of contemporary application of this particular sort of philosophical examination of Dostoevsky's, it's really hard not to see parallels to contemporary cancel culture and the sort of way that Twitter will just set a person on fire and just revel in the immolation of this this person as they their career falls apart. It's weird how much people enjoy destroying other people. Um, but it's also fairly universal. Like, I'm not trying to point out that Dostoevsky is in, somehow, is in some way wrong about this. On the contrary, I think that he's incredibly insightful in recognizing that, you know, again, as Zosima himself put it, that people revel in the, the fall of a, a righteous man. Um, that we enjoy sort of seeing someone who is either smarter than we are or better than we are or more loving than we are brought down to our level in some way. We want that. We, we hunger for it. We want the people who have been, you know, telling us to be better people to be revealed as hypocrites. Um, and then we want to, you know, laugh and destroy them and, and just insult and, and ridicule. And this is, you know, throughout all history, like, from the witch trials to, you know, the, the public, like, the public spectacle that was executions once upon a time, you know, even the, the Inquisition that Ivan was talking about in the Grand Inquisitor, there is very much this suggestion, that even though people are really glad to see Jesus come in and enjoy the proceedings, or, and interrupt the proceedings, um, they're there to enjoy the show, to see people set on fire, to see people tortured and killed horribly. Um, and that there is a joy to this, a, a pleasure, a schadenfreude. Um, we see this here. And we, of course, see it most, especially in the figure of Father Farapont, who, you know, takes this rare opportunity to come out of his cell and basically show up and denigrate the father's Osima for 
this behavior. Like, he comes in and he crosses himself and he, you know, casts out all of the devils and so on. And we get this sort of back and forth between him and Father, Father Pacey, um, where Pacey is sort of very quietly and restrainedly trying to, you know, keep order in a place where it's very obviously breaking down. And Pacey is obviously also, you know, invested in the Father. He would have been one of those who wanted to see a miracle. He is protecting the elder Zosima, in a sense. Um, and he asks Father Farapon, Wherefore have you come, worthy Father? Wherefore do you violate good order? Wherefore do you trouble the humble flock? And notice that Father Farapont is presented here by Dostoevsky as being kind of absurd and even sort of agrammatical here, that he is just being plainly mean and kind of dumb. Like, Dostoevsky does not pull any punches here. Father Farapont is presented to us as a villain, and he is not presented sympathetically. Like, he is as close to an out-and-out -out villain that we've seen so far, with the possible exception of Rakitin and Smerdyakov. So his response is, why for have I come? Why for do you ask? How believest thou? And we're told that he is, cries this in his holy folly. He's sort of perverting some of the orthodox liturgy here, that how believest thou we've heard before from Elder Zosima in a totally different context. But here it doesn't make any sense. Father Farapont is sort of putting on the appearance of holiness without actually having any substance to back it up. I came forth to drive out your guests here, the foul devils. I want to see how many you've stored up without me. I want to sweep them out with a birch broom. And Father Pacey very cuttingly responds, You drive out the unclean one, and it is perhaps him that you serve. And who can say of himself, I am holy? Can you, Father? Now, Farapont has not explicitly said, I am holy, and he responds as such. I am foul, not holy. I would not sit in an armchair. I would not desire to be worshipped like an idol. But nonetheless, he implied by his act of coming in, crossing himself, and sweeping out all of the devils that he is somehow capable of doing this. There is a holiness that has been arrogated to himself. And I want to stress this. This interaction between Pacey and Farapont, the hypocrisy of Farapont, and how it masquerades as holiness, because I think that there is actually something very striking about this as well in Dostoevsky's sites. The thing about Christianity is that Christianity is very much wrapped up in appearances and realities. You know, the entirety of the Sermon on the Mount, especially in the Gospel of Matthew, very much emphasizes that Jesus wants to draw a distinction between the people who look holy and the people who are holy. That the Pharisees are condemned because they make a big show of their holiness. That they come out and they, you know, beat their breasts and they cry aloud and they pray aloud and they make a big commotion. And as a result, people look at them and say, wow, those people are holy. And there's this sort of double double-edged sword quality about the morality of Christianity as a consequence. We are told by Jesus in the in the you know gospels to pray quietly in a corner where no one can hear us. And that, that is best because then you are not sort of putting on this air of holiness. Whereas then you have this kind of reversal. Like, if you are, in fact, doing this silently, quietly, isn't that itself an act of pride or an act of, you know, self-righteousness, a sort of apparent holiness? It goes back and forth here. And the key to holiness, as Pacey points out, is that anyone who accuses another person of being unholy is themselves running the risk of that hypocrisy. 
Farapont doesn't seem to be aware of this. He comes in and shouts and, you know, makes a big commotion, and he wants the spectacle because he is hypocritically sort of arrogating this holiness to himself. But Pacey has to be so careful about how he confronts Farapont because he realizes that if he is given the opportunity, or if Father Farapont is given the opportunity, he will condemn Pacey on the same grounds that Pacey just condemned him. And Farapont kind of does here. Now people are destroying the holy faith. The deceased, your saint here, he turned to the crowd, pointing at the coffin with his finger, denied devils. He gave purgatives against devils. So they bred here like spiders in the corners. And on this day, he got himself stunk. In this, we see a great sign from God. Notice there is truth to what Farapont says. Like Pacey and the narrator acknowledge it in the very next uh, paragraph that the elder apparently had been confronted with this monk who apparently saw devils and Elders Asuma said, you know, pray, pray and fast, and, and hopefully you'll come over this. And eventually he didn't. And Father Farapont's next move was to prescribe medicine, which Farapont, or Zosima prescribes medicine. Farapont considers this, again, a dereliction of duty. He's supposed to see devils, Farapont would argue, because Farapont himself claims to see devils. Um, and there's this sort of awfulness about this moment where Pacey is trying to sort of get rid of Farapont, who is clearly here under bad faith, but Pacey can't get rid of Farapont without himself overstepping himself and sort of revealing him himself or, or exposing his own unholiness. On some level, Farapont is right that the that Zosima did in fact take indulgences, that he did accept candies from, from the women who would come to visit him, and that he would not keep the fasts. But Farapont himself, we've been told, doesn't show up to met to the services. He he refuses to attend most of the time. Both of them, in their holy foolishness, have transgressed the boundaries of what the, mon the monastery expects of their monks. Both Farapont and Zosima have gone out on a limb, broken some of the rules in the name of a greater holiness. And now we are presented with this confrontation. Whose was right? Is Zosima the true holy fool, or is Farapont the true holy fool? And note, this, this idea of a holy fool has been thrown around so much in this book that it has in many ways lost all of its meaning. We don't know what a holy fool is at this point. And in truth, this is probably representative of how the term was used in Dostoevsky's day. Like, as much as, you know, you can try and pin down what, what a holy fool actually is, notice that it, is a, it has been applied in this novel to, on the one hand, Elder Zosima, who we respect and find profound, as well as Alyosha, who we recognize as sort of like on the same track as Zosima, but it's also been applied sort of knowingly erroneously by Fyodor Karamazov to himself, which, you know, if that, like, that seems just ridiculous to think that he was a holy fool, it was applied to stinking Lizaveta, the, the mentally uh, troubled woman who, you know, had all of these good behaviors, but was not behaving the way that a normal person would. What with, you know, every time that she received money, she gave it to the poor, and she refused to wear anything but a nightgown. Like, she too is apparently in this category of holy fool, and at least she seems to be honest about it, but 
we wouldn't normally think of somebody who is mentally disabled or, or who suffers this to be in the same category as someone like Zosima, who is presented to us as holy and knowing that he is holy. And then on the other hand, we have Farapont being described as a holy fool. So clearly, the holiness of a holy fool is not in any way indic indicated by the term. Holy fool is kind of this broad and almost meaningless term, the way that Dostoevsky has been using it in the novel. It's not in any way an indication of whether we can trust the person who is being described as a holy fool. Um, in some way, Dostoevsky is pointing to the fact that this term, this idea of these people touched by God who behave differently, this isn't necessarily an indication that they are in fact good or bad, that some of them are hypocrites and some of them are holy and some of them have been chosen by God and some of them are pretending to have been chosen by God. It is a very dangerous sort of term, in short, and it establishes a very dangerous precedent. How do you condemn Farapont for his hypocrisy and yet also commend Elder Zosima for his sincerity when both of them are under this mantle of being the holy fool. People look at the two and say they are the same, even though they couldn't be more different than night and day. This is what I find so interesting about this whole passage, about this whole chapter. There's this hypocrisy at the root of this monastery, and this hypocrite, the most hypocritical of them all, Father Farapont, is using the accusation of hypocrisy to instead condemn sincere and good people. We have bad monks here. It is very clear that that's the case. That We have the sort of curious monk from Abdorsk who seems to just be suspicious of everyone all of the time. We have Rakuten and his sort of, you know, over-the-counter liberalism that he is masquerading as a monk altogether. We have Father Farapont, who is hypocritically insisting on fasting and sort of punishing himself for reasons that aren't quite clear to us, but clearly seem to be a way of gaining influence in this place and therefore using his influence over and against other people. It's very clear that there are bad monks here, but the people who are being accused of being bad monks are the good ones, and it is the bad monks themselves who are doing the accusations. And as a consequence of this Christian morality, as a consequence of the sort of restrictions that are placed on, on these priests and these monks, like Father Pacey, they cannot respond in violence or accusation or condemnation. Farapont can't be separated from the good monks, because to separate him would be to become a bad monk yourself. And this is absolutely the sort of hypocrisy that you see all the time in contemporary Christian circles, as well as in contemporary political circles. This is a classic move of bad faith republicanism and bad faith alt-right behavior, where you end up with somebody who goes out of their way to say, you are the racist when they are themselves the racist, when they go out of their way to say, you are the hypocrite, when they are themselves not in any way trying to maintain allegiance to their values and ideals. And because good behavior is not, act, not accusing, not stooping to these ad hominem arguments, they act with impunity. Father Pacey and the opponents of this sort of hypocritical behavior in our own time can't actively condemn these people without being branded hypocrites themselves. 
to the outside observer, to the layperson visiting the monastery in this chapter, just as to the average voter today, it's very difficult to distinguish who the people are who are in good faith versus those who are in bad faith, because they are very much behaving in much the same way. Getting impatient with hypocrisy looks a lot like the same sort of hypocrisy. It's very difficult to distinguish, and I think Dostoevsky very keenly manages to portray that here. He is very interested in not just evil, but the way that evil disguises itself, presents itself as goodness, as holiness, as righteousness, and how very difficult it is to root it out, to weed it out, except, as Zosima has shown us, through plain, simple, and gormless love. It's a really interesting sort of dynamic that we see here. And obviously, this is devastating to Alyosha. To the point that we actually get a really interesting sort of narrative interjection on the part of our narrator at the very beginning of chapter 2, where both Dostoevsky and the narrator very much defend Alyosha for being vulnerable to this. On the one hand, they're stressing that Alyosha is not falling in with the crowd that seems to think that this sign of the odor of corruption is somehow an indication that Zosima was not holy. He is not falling in with it, those of little faith, as Father Pacey puts it. Um, he is to be separated from them in some way. But he is still hurting. He is still in great pain, not just because the elder is dead, but because he wanted some kind of honor for him, not in the way that many of these monks who are superstitious or, or sort of, you know, superficially faithful seem to think, but rather he wanted his elder to die with honor, with dignity. He wanted people to admire him. And instead we have this disreputable, dishonorable, grotesque and repulsive discussion, this sort of conflict happening in the monastery at this time when he is already emotionally compromised. He is hurting, in short. Alyosha is in terrible pain right here, and he even seems to go so far as to blame God for this. He wants this higher justice, as we're told, which is definitely invoking the language that Ivan was talking about in his chapter on rebellion and the Grand Inquisitor. And in fact, we get in his interaction with Rakuten like, Alyosha starts talking about how he will accept God, but he won't accept this world. And then another distinction that is very keenly from the chapter on Rebellion and the chapter on Grand Inquisitor. Alyosha seems to have lost faith here. And Rakuten even goads him, as far as this is concerned. Because, of course, Rakuten does. Rakuten is, you know, totally unscrupulous. He is enjoying the fall of the righteous man, and he is enjoying the, this new fall of this new righteous man in trying to get Alyosha to succumb to his temptation as well. So notice the, the confrontation between the two of them, starting on page 341. I believed, I believe, and I want to believe, and I will believe, and what more do you want? Alyosha cried irritably. Precisely nothing, my dear. Ah, oh, the devil, but even 13-year-old schoolboys don't believe such things anymore. Still, ah, oh, the devil. So you've gotten angry with your god now. You've rebelled. They passed you over for promotion. You didn't get a medal for the feast day. Ah, you. Alyosha gave Rakuten a long look. His eyes somehow narrowed and something flashed in them, but not anger at Rakuten. I do not rebel against my god. I simply do not accept his world. Alyosha suddenly smiled crookedly. 
What do you mean you don't accept his world? Rakuten thought over his reply for a moment. What sort of gibberish is that? Alyosha did not answer. Well, enough talk of trifles. Now to business. Did you eat anything today? I don't remember. I think I did. By the looks of you, you need fortifying. What a sorry sight. You didn't sleep last night, so I hear. You had a meeting, and then all this fuss and muss. I bet you had nothing but a piece of blessed bread to chew on. I've got a hunk of sausage here in my pocket. I brought it from town just in case, because I was coming here, only you probably won't. Note, because of the vows that Alyosha has taken, he shouldn't be a, he shouldn't be eating meat. He's forsworn it. And yet he says here, let's have your sausage. Aha, so that's how it is. Real rebellion, barricades and all. Well, brother, that's not to be sneered at. Let's go to my place. I'd love a shot of vodka right now. I'm dead tired. You wouldn't go so far as to have vodka, or would you? Let's have your vodka. Say, amazing, brother, Rakuten rolled his eyes. Well, one way or the other, vodka or sausage, it's a brave thing, a fine thing, not to be missed. And of course, Rakuten finally escalates it to this last point where he invites Alyosha to come with him to Grushenka's. And Grushenka is another matter altogether. We'll talk about that in its own time. But notice, for Alyosha, this is his moment of greatest weakness. This is his fall. Rakuten is not wrong to see this as the fall of the righteous man. Alyosha, in a sense, has fallen here. He has, in fact, believed so strongly in his elder and now is so resentful of God for not distinguishing him the way that he wanted to, and in fact turning it around and disgracing the elder in his death, that Alyosha is now accepting Ivan's perspective. Ivan, who said, you know, I accept God, but I do not accept what he calls justice. Alyosha seems to believe the same thing. The elder did not receive justice. And so Alyosha rebels. Alyosha, like Ivan, seems to think that God has done him dirty, has not fairly treated this person who cared about him so very much. And Rakuten preys on this. Rakuten wants to push Alyosha over the edge, wants to get him to do something that he'll regret. So he brings him to Grushenka's. Now, we get, at long last, a fairly decent explanation of what's going on with Grushenka here. That Grushenka has apparently been brought to this place by first the, the you know, the um, Samsonov, the merchant, and now is apparently, like, engaged to Kuzma Kuzmich. Um, it's very unclear exactly what the circumstances here, either because Dostoevsky is hedging or the translation is a little weak here, what we do get is that Grushenka is a woman who is apparently disgraced. Somebody has had sex with her, or at least the thought is that somebody has had sex with her. Presumably Samsonov, and also and possibly Kuzma Kuzmich. But Grushenka also very much emphasizes that nobody else has. Not Fyodor, not Dmitri, despite all of the time that she's spent with them, despite how flirtatious she is, despite the fact that she does seem to be extremely free with her physicality. Notice how she immediately sits on Alyosha's lap and stays there for the f first part of their, their interaction together. Obviously, she's been doing this to other people as well, and that's how she's gotten her reputation. But her reputation is to some degree not deserved. She very adamantly states, no, she has been admittedly disgraced, but only by one person, only by the person who we all knew had disgraced her. What's more, though, she is disgraced not just because of her sexuality, but because of her behavior in the meantime. In order to make ends meet, she is apparently turned into something of a moneylender. Now notice the Dostoevsky connects this with 
Jewishness. We get this line on page 344. It was also known that the young lady, especially during the past year, had gotten into what is known as Geschäft, and that she had proved herself extraordinarily able in this respect, so that in the end, many started calling her a real Jew. I recognize that Dostoevsky is definitely an anti-Semite, like there's no bones about it. Virtually everybody in the 19th century was an anti-Semite. It was a really straightforward, easy political practice, like people often traded on anti-Semitism in Germany, in Russia, in France. Throughout the 19th century, Jews are very much in bad straits. But notice that the connection here is to the money lending. You know, this is an even older tradition. For the longest time, Christians were not allowed to lend money on interest due to, you know, the Bible saying that you're not supposed to do that. Um, so as a consequence, Jews, who were also not supposed to lend money to each other on interest, but generally considered it okay to lend to Gentiles on interest, they, they became the, the primary money lenders for Europe throughout, you know, the entire modern period to some degree. So that association lingers here. What Dostoevsky is saying is that Grushenka has defiled herself, not just sexually, but by starting to take loans on interest and dealing in sort of shady uh, loaning practices with other people. So notice we get this comment about how, you know, she will buy up debts at, you know, one-tenth of a ruble uh, of their worth, and then sell, and then end up making ten rubles off of them. Um, so she's clearly involved in some kind of crazy financial or economic shenanigans, um, and she has disgraced herself in that way as well. She is, for all intents and purposes, a vicious woman, um, in basically all of the ways that you can imagine. But notice that she's also presented here very differently from how she was presented with Katerina Ivanovna. She's practically a completely different person. Like, when we saw her with Katerina Ivanovna, she's presented as especially sugary. Like, that was the, the adjective that we were that Dostoevsky used to describe her so frequently. She was sugary. She was not, She was sweet and voluptuous and insincere and dangerous and tempting. Um, but here, she's apparently sort of caught off guard. Apparently, she's waiting for this incredibly important message from Kuzma Kuzmich, who is, in fact, engaged to her and is apparently supposed to call her away at any moment. But this is when Rakuten and Alyosha arrive. And initially, she's concerned. She's really actually scared, because she thinks that it's Dimitri who's breaking in to see her. And she's honestly legitimately frightened of Dimitri at this point. Um, after all, he's been so violent lately. And we should also be thinking about Dimitri here. This is now day two that Alyosha has gone without seeing Dimitri, despite the fact that the Elder Zosima specifically warned him that things were going to get dangerous with Dimitri. And we've been told by Ivan through Smerdyakov that things are about to get really dicey with Fyodor as well. So it's probably important that somebody check on Dimitri, and yet nobody can find him, it seems. Um, we did, in fact, we do find out that Grushenka apparently saw Dimitri earlier today, that Dimitri walked him to, or walked her to this house where this merchant who, you know, she's apparently in deals with, um, the two of them were supposed to be, like, counting their money all day, but she left ten minutes afterwards instead of staying till midnight, like she suggests, and now she's back at home actually terrified that Dimitri's going to find out and come charging in at any moment. But when she discovers that it's Rakuten and Alyosha, her demeanor entirely changes. She's thrilled 
to see that Alyosha is here. And it seems that her initial goal in having Alyosha nearby is to seduce him. It's not entirely clear why she wants to seduce him, besides, again, that same sort of fall of the righteous man that Rakuten seems so excited about. But more importantly, she seems to want to use him as leverage over Fyodor and Dmitri to some degree. She recognizes that they value his opinion, she recognizes that, you know, he is this sort of innocent to be corrupted, and she seems to be throwing herself at him with the intention of corrupting him, but never actually letting it get so far as sleeping with him. That wouldn't be, you know, permissible under Grushenka's strange and sort of surprisingly strict uh, sexual ethics. But as soon as she finds out that Alyosha is coming from the elder's funeral, she freaks out. She stops immediately and apologizes. And we get this surprising moment of earnestness for both characters. Both Grushenka and Alyosha, we're told, have their souls touched by this meeting. And Alyosha commends Grushenka on her honesty, on her simplicity, on her straightforwardness, on the fact that despite all of her schemes and you know, diabolical trades and all of the evil that she's done and the seduction she's engaged in, Alyosha recognizes that at the end of the day, she is just trying to get by. That she still has a streak of goodness in her, a habitual goodness, a goodness that recognizes that it's not okay to try and seduce a man who has just come from a funeral, a man who is in mourning. But we also see that it wouldn't have worked anyway. We get this line from the narrator about how Alyosha is fortified with armor greater than he ever could have anticipated. That Alyosha, who is usually really shy and uncomfortable around women, at least in part because he has that same Karamazov streak that we've been warned about, that he is, you know, secretly actually, you know, tempted and, and lusting after these women, even if we don't actually see it. Now he's prevented from that because he is so deep in his own mourning because he is so wounded by the death of Zosima and his subsequent disgrace. So Grushenka is honest because, on the one hand, despite her evil, she acknowledges and pulls back, knowing that this is bigger than her. And Alyosha, in turn, recognizes this and commends her. And we get this story from Grushenka about the, the old woman and the onion. There was this vicious old woman who had no good deeds in her life, and she went to hell, and her guardian angel goes to God and says, you know, I've looked and looked, and there was this one time that she pulled, like, pulled an onion out of the ground and gave it to a beggar. And God says, okay, then take the onion and draw her out of the lake of fire with it, and if the onion breaks, then she'll stay there, but if the onion remains whole, she gets to come to heaven. And the angel does. The angel brings the onion to the woman. The woman holds onto the onion. But as soon as everybody in the lake of fire sees what's going on, they cling to this woman, trying to get carried up to heaven with her. And she starts kicking at them and saying, no, it's my onion. You don't get any of it. And as soon as she does, the onion breaks. This is classic Russian fable, like, very morality play kind of thing here, like, oh, well, if she had only been selfless at this point in time, if she hadn't been so worried about herself, she would have been fine, and that was the lesson that she was supposed to have learned. But notice that Grushenka changes the meaning here. On the one hand, she says, you know, I do have my onion. I have done my one good thing in life. And she emphasizes this especially to Rakuten, who is keen to sort of make fun of her and, and Alyosha at this point, now that both of them are being sincere, which Rakuten can't tolerate. But at the other hand, Grushenka says to Alyosha, she has only an onion. 
yes, she has done some little good thing, just as Alyosha recognizes here. And that's enough, as far as Alyosha is concerned. Grushenka is a terribly evil woman. She acknowledges her own evil. But she has done some good things, just one or two. And she hopes that that's enough to carry her into heaven. And Alyosha seems to insist, no, there are many who will get into heaven by an onion alone. Which is probably dangerous as far as Dostoevsky's theologizing here. Like, he would not be the first fiction writer to sort of make some fairly wild assumptions about who does and doesn't get into heaven. Although at least he has the decency to be in, in the the voice of another character who is admittedly emotionally and theologically compromised at this particular point in time. But I also very much get the sense that Dostoevsky does believe this. That as much as, you know, Christianity is very insistent about justification and sanctification, the rules by which this takes place, that, you know, especially in Protestant circles, we very much get told all the time that works have nothing to do with getting into heaven. Notice that Dostoevsky very strongly disagrees here, and very much seems to think that God's generosity and mercy will cover a multitude of sins if, in fact, you have an onion. You have one little good deed to sort of sanctify, to protect yourself, to speak for yourself in some sense. And we see this again at the very end of this passage, when Alyosha is sort of trying to fall asleep and listening to the elder, or to the Father Pacey, reading the story of the wedding at Cana. And notice that here we get a sort of transformation of what Grushenka was talking about in her discussion of, you know, the onion and, and how people will be saved even if they only have a couple of good deeds to their name. Alyosha very much re remembers this passage, loves this passage, recalls this passage very fondly, and recognizes that the reason why he likes it is because it is a moment when Jesus not just performs a miracle, thus demonstrating his godhood and all that, but performs a miracle specifically devoted towards people enjoying themselves. That Jesus is putting the stamp of approval on drinking, in a sense, on weddings, on festivity, on happiness, on people just enjoying themselves. And this is really important to Alyosha. It's something that the Elder very much insisted upon, and it is something that Dostoevsky has very much insisted upon, we were told very much in the second chapter that Alyosha's faithfulness, as naive and innocent as it is, much as Rakuten makes fun of him for his 13-year-old boyish faith, we're told that this is a good thing, that Alyosha is right to be sort of immersed in the world, to sort of be enamored with just the day-to-day -day lives of people, and to get excited about things like Grushenka's tiny little demonstration of honesty here. Um, this passage, this biblical story, seems to justify that. And by the time that the chapter ends, we go from this being a theological story to a dream sequence in which Alyosha is greeting Father Zosima in heaven, and that heaven is in fact the place where Jesus is serving the wine. Um, and we get this sort of kind of symbolic and kind of small, but also very broad and big depiction of what heaven looks like for Alyosha and for Dostoevsky, as well as for Elder Zosima and what the wedding at Cana seems to suggest. Humans are not meant to suffer. 
in short. They are meant to enjoy themselves. There is no shame in joy and in pleasantness. No shame in the candies that the Elder Zosima used to have from time to time. And if anything, it's the flagellants, the people like Father Farapon, who specifically deny themselves these simple, straightforward pleasures, these very human pleasures. These are the ones that Dostoevsky distrusts. These are the ones who are putting on airs of holiness when in fact they do not understand what holiness actually is. And so we see this transformation in Alyosha. First, we see Alyosha damaged beyond belief, totally destroyed by the passing of his elder and by the lack of, of sort of acknowledgement that God has given him. But we are told to forgive him for this. We are told that this is good faith, even if it isn't necessarily theologically sound or justified. And this leads him to rebellion. Rakuten tempts him, and he succumbs to that temptation. He rejects the, the justice of the universe. He, he distrusts God. He rebels just as Ivan does. But all it takes is Grushenka jumping off of him, suddenly shocked that he, she is you know, overstepping herself so much. And Alyosha suddenly remembers all of this. He recognizes that there is this fundamental goodness, even in this terribly evil woman. And he too repents. He acknowledges, no, I am worse than you, Grushenka. You are doing your evil honestly. I should know better. I should, you know, I am getting upset over this petty distinction, and I've declared war on God as a consequence. You have only done what you needed to do to survive, given your circumstances. And Grushenka, she has moments of weakness throughout her speech. She is going to join Kuzma Kuzmanich, or maybe she's not going to, or maybe she's going to bring a knife and, you know, deface herself or kill him. And it's very unclear what she wants and what she needs, what she's even going to do. She's upset. She's raving, practically. But Alyosha recognizes this is in her honesty. This is her innocence. This is... The fact of the matter is, she is being as straightforward and honest as Fyodor Karamazov can never bring himself to be. Where Fyodor is always acting out to try and sort of deceive everybody about what the truth of his situation is, Alyosha is acknowledging that Grushenka is doing exactly the opposite. She is raving because she doesn't know what to do, because she's scared, and because she's sad, and because she's upset and indignant and just dishonored, and she doesn't know what to do about it. And Alyosha admires that her, that truthfulness, that honesty, where he himself has done what his father would have done and what Ivan would have done, gotten upset for no good reason. They are both guilty as a consequence. But his last transformation here, having come back from Grushenka's changed again, he comes and listens to the story about Cana of Galilee and is suddenly reinvigorated, re-enamored of the goodness of the world, of all of the world, of all the little bitty parts of the world. He gets down on his knees and kisses the ground under the open sky and the Milky Way galaxy shining. Like, he is just so excited to be here, to be able to experience any of this, to feel the wind on his face and the dirt on his lips. All of this is beautiful, he re realizes. All of this is his gift, his being able to be to participate in God's great creation. This is the final stage here. And we're told by the narrator early on in this chapter that this is admittedly a moment of great weakness for Alyosha, but because of this moment of great weakness, it turns into incredible strength. 
This is the moment that Alyosha goes from being the young, naive apprentice who doesn't quite know how to deal with the world and may not be strong enough to actually contend with what's going on. This is the transformation by which Alyosha becomes truly good, truly able to follow in the footsteps of the Elder Zosima. It took this much disappointment, this much sadness and suffering, this much pain for him to overcome it and ultimately to be able to see what is really worth getting excited about, what is really worth loving, and to recognize, as Zosimo told us, that you have to love everyone because you are guilty before everyone. We see this transformation played out. Elder or Alyosha is the innocent, just as Elder Zosima talks about children. He becomes guilty before everyone because he turns and rebels against God. And ultimately, through his guilt, he becomes happy, loving everything and everyone. As we saw in the last section, only if a grain of corn of wheat falls to the ground will it give forth fruit. Otherwise, it just abides alone. Alyosha has died to himself here in this passage, and now he can give forth fruit. But of course, we should be also extremely concerned and worried about Dimitri at this point. What has Mitya been doing? Where is he? Is he still running crazy about Grushenka? Is he still in his murderous passion? What the heck is going on with him? We haven't seen him for two days, and we're told at the end of this passage that Alyosha just forgets about him for another three days, that he's apparently just hanging out in the monastery for three days, despite the fact that the Elder told him to sojourn in the world. Like, it's... Apparently, he's just fallen off the face of the earth. Fortunately, in the next section, we're actually going to catch up with Mitya and see this great suffering that the Elder Zosima predicted. Um, but this is also a very long section, so we're going to divide this one in half. Um, so next week, we're going to read the first half of Mitya's book, Book 8, Mitya, uh, namely chapters 1 through 5, starting with, obviously, Kuzma Samsonov and ending with, uh, not Here I Come, we're going to end with A Sudden Decision and start with Here I Come in two weeks. Um, so we'll break this one in half. We'll probably do that for a couple of the, the books coming up, since many of them are, are longer than usual, um, and hopefully this will give us an opportunity to see what sort of transformations and developments are going on with Mitya's character, just as we saw Alyosha's great transformation and character development here in this section. I look forward to talking about it with you soon. Hey, thanks for listening. I look forward to having some new content out next week for you. And in the meantime, I highly recommend that you check out my other projects on professorkozlowski.wordpress.com, which is the sort of center for all of the things I'm doing online these days. Um, and please, if you like this, share it, subscribe to it, send it out, get everybody to know that I'm making lectures and talking about something that you're interested in. Um, the more listeners I have, the more people I have following me, the better chance there is that I'll be able to continue doing this. And if you can, please consider contributing to my Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Professor Kozlowski. Um, I've already got a few patrons. We are up and running. Um, but the more money I'm making through this project, the more I can devote my time and energy to my projects online, and the less I have to worry about things like rent and feeding myself. Um, so please, keep, keep listening, keep sharing, keep subscribing. 
and as much as you can, keep contributing. Uh, I'll see you soon.